Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. John Highland, a professor of ancient history at Christopher Newport University. In this episode, we discuss the real relationship between Sparta and Persia, dive into the motivations behind Persia funding the Spartans, who are not a naval power, and look a little at the logistics of war and the issues with moving armies and supplies. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Great. Thanks so much for joining me this morning, John. It's so good to see you again, and I want to start us off and just ask you, you know, how did you get into the study of ancient Persia, Achaemenid studies specifically, but um, it had to start somewhere. All right, Lexi, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm really excited to be able to talk about ancient Persia with your uh, program. I really started my interest in the ancient world when I was grade school age. Um, And with Persia, really, my first encounters were uh, my dad reading me Herodotus as bedtime stories when when I was in kindergarten or or first grade. Um, My Dad is also a classical scholar, and, and he was studying for his Greek exams when I was in kindergarten uh, and would, would read me and translate passages. So I, I had a very early introduction that kind of came through the, the lens of the Greek world uh, and the, the idea of the Persian-Greek wars. And then as I got older, and especially when I was high school aged, I read a lot of military history in uh, many different periods of world history. And at that point, I was coming back and starting to read bits of Herodotus and bits of Xenophon in in translation and starting to get excited about uh, trying to understand these ancient conflicts and how they worked. Uh, But what really sold me was when I was an undergrad in college, my freshman year in college at Cornell University, I took a class called Democracy and War with Barry Strauss. And it was a comparative history class looking at the Peloponnesian War in ancient Greece and the Korean War and early Cold War era in 20th century. And I was hooked on this class. I I loved everything about it, uh, but it was really the ancient material that pulled me in more. And I found the more that I really dug into reading about the ancient Greeks, I wanted to know more about the Persians. The, the Persians were always there. The, it was always the big power in the background. And that really raised a curiosity to find out more about what was driving this major world power. Um, so then it was, it was a long story from there, but Barry convinced me to start taking Greek uh, language and, and taking more uh, ancient history classes with him. I wrote more papers and more and more I find myself writing papers about uh, what the Persians were were thinking in the Greek history classes. And eventually that turned into a senior thesis. Then I was lucky enough to get to go to the University of Chicago and to study in their committee on the ancient Mediterranean world for my graduate studies. And that was an interdisciplinary program that allowed students to focus on 
Greek language and history alongside one or more languages from ancient Middle East or North Africa. And so in that context, I was able to really focus on the Persian Empire. I was able to study with a great Achaemenid historian, Matt Stolper, who's done uh, an enormous amount of work on the Persepolis archives and the Babylonian documentation, and uh, also to study Greek history at the same time. And so that really built uh, on a more professional level that that taught me how to be a scholar and how to think about cultural connections and interplay in the border zones between this huge Persian empire and the Greek city-states. That's really, really cool. I mean, props to your dad for also reading you Herodotus. That's a flex right there that I feel like many people do, <laughs> just like that's that's its own level of cool because um, most people's like parents read them. I don't know, just like not that. So that's awesome. <laughs> I tradition. I started reading Herodotus to my kids during the COVID lockdown. It's a way of lightening the mood. You know, sometimes you really do need to retreat into the past, into the ancient world, and it's amazing and rewarding. So props to you for introducing your kids, just continuing that nice tradition. But I'm a little curious, were you always big into the warfare side? And did that come from anything like outside of let's say the interest in the ancient world do you have any connections to you know did you did you have either family who served into the armed force or something that like bolstered that or was it more like a when kids get to a certain age and then you're like running around in school and you're like i'm gonna just play fight with friends and then get really interested and then when you have access to the materials you decide you know you want to pursue it yeah i i was always drawn to military history, uh, again, from childhood. I, again, have stories from family about my grandparents fighting in the Second World War and, and uh, a few stories about ancestors. There's not really much of a military tradition in my family. When I was getting into reading a lot of classical history uh, as a, a teenager, I, I was also reading a lot on um, American Civil War, on Revolutionary Era and Napoleonic Warfare. And for a time, I thought that I was going to go into the military. And uh, I had a very, very brief two-month stint at, at the United States Military Academy to teach me that that was not my path. Uh, and I then went from there to Cornell, and, and I realized that I can study war and empire and government and society, but you know, without having to actually go down uh, that career path myself. But I think that those connections with it only increased the the interest for me. And since uh, moving to Virginia to, to teach at Christopher Newport University, again, this has only grown. Uh, I'm in an area with a really big military population. I live between Naval base, Army base, Coast Guard and, and Air Force. And uh, a lot of my kids, friends, parents are, are military, got lots of military contacts in the area. Uh, and so a lot of conversations I have in day-to-day -day life are with people who are connected to the military or to logistics or to uh, shipping companies that ship things overseas. And again, all of this builds my interest in how this would work in, an, in a pre-modern context. 
That's so fascinating. Now, you obviously came in through the Greek side. Many of us do just because it's really easy to find some sort of classes on the ancient Greeks and there's classics departments. But for people who are more interested in in the Persian side, do you think it's possible? Like, is it easier now if you wanted to go straight to the Persians and kind of like bypass having to do classics to get to the Persians. I mean, it's probably changed a lot between when you were in school, when I was in school and now. Um, but I've just noticed that most of the people who eventually sort of phase into the Persians, they don't really get to start there. I think there's greater opportunities now than, than there were. Again, it depends on very heavily on where you go to school, um, at, just the, the level of local interest and, and local availability of, of education on this. Obviously, the uh, Iranian-American community in California has been really interested in promoting education on ancient Iran that, just, that doesn't just fall back on Greek or Roman uh, stereotypes. Um, and my friend and colleague, John Lee, I, I know, was involved in working with advocacy groups several years ago to, to try to increase the teaching of ancient Persia in California schools. Um, we don't have as much. We certainly have a, an Iranian community uh, in Virginia, especially Northern Virginia, and a, a smaller one in our area. But I think there's, there's broader educational opportunities at the college level, just because there's a larger number of people practicing and teaching ancient Persian history uh, to undergrads there really weren't as many people outside a handful of elite colleges, I think, who were doing this in 1980s and 1990s. Whereas now, you know, the, the opportunities have grown. Um, that being said, you know, I, I think there's a lot of value in studying the Persian Empire along with uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient China and India, if possible. I think it's best situated in a, a broad world history teaching context to get as many potential avenues and comparisons as possible. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that an interdisciplinary approach is very valuable. It's a good one because we don't, I've noticed that we don't generally do a very good job of educating people kind of like what's happening in different ancient cultures simultaneously to when things are happening. So when I was going through school, definitely in classics I knew what was going on in the Greek world and then I remember someone asked me you know oh hey during the Peloponnesian War what's happening in Egypt because you like Egypt I was like that's a bit of a random question but okay sure fine and then I realized I did not know the answer and no one in my department really was going to teach us what was happening so I think I ended up having to google it which Okay, fine. But um, then I was like, oh, yeah, it's like chilling out as a Persian satrap. Cool. That's fun. You know, that's just how I feel it goes these days. So a lot of your work has to do with, yes, ancient military. But I see you've you've done a a ton of work on, on ancient Sparta, which in and of itself, right, is it's it's a whole thing. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of evidence left from Sparta itself, which is very, very sad. But Sparta is a place that has been heavily mythologized and you do have the famous, for better or for worse, 300 film, which kind of highlights the relationship of Sparta and the Persians. But from a non-Hollywoodification 
point of view. Can you elaborate a little bit on the relationship between Sparta and the Achaemenids? Because I'm, I'm, I, I'd like to think I know, but also I don't because no one taught me. And I feel like a lot of people would also be interested in what is the actual relationship between these places that's not just seen in 300. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, again, this was kind of one of my entry points into the the field when I was an undergraduate, was looking at Spartan and Persian diplomacy and thinking beyond the military confrontation that they're, they're most famous for. Um, so you have a large number of Greek city-states across the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea and the ancient Mediterranean. There were about 1,000 Greek city-states at, at the height of Greek culture around 400 to 300 BCE. Um, Sparta was the largest Greek city-state in what's now mainland Greece in territorial terms, but was relatively underpopulated. Uh, and Athens, the other major Greek city-state that everybody learns about, also had a large territory, smaller than Sparta's, but it had a much higher population. Athens had a, a direct outlet to the sea through its harbor at the Piraeus, where Sparta is located inland, up a river valley that's not navigable. Uh, so Athens really developed with much broader contacts and trade with the outside world, uh, especially in the late archaic and classical periods, so the, the 500s through the 300s BCE, where Sparta developed an effort at hegemony or, or basically coalition building with the Spartans on top uh, among a large number of smaller Greek city-states in its immediate vicinity. The Spartans were not really an imperial power, though. And classical Athenian authors, uh, especially Thucydides, who, who wrote about the Peloponnesian War, talk about Sparta's backwardness as a leader of other Greeks. The Spartans do not have a coined monetary system in contrast with the Athenians and most Greek city-states by the, the 500s BCE. Uh, and over time, the Spartans falter as an imperial or hegemonic power because they are not very good at, uh, they're not really good at building a permanent trust among their allies. They're not particularly good at developing economic resources to finance their military campaigns and to be able to project power far away. Uh, so this creates this in interesting dynamic when the Persian Empire sends military troops into the Greek mainland in the early 400s BCE. Um, in the year 480, the king of Persia, Xerxes, leads a military force that includes a, an army and a navy, but also the royal court. They have traveled all the way from Iran uh, through what's now Turkey or Anatolia to get to the Aegean frontier, and then eventually by a winding path to try to attack the city of Athens. Uh, they're interested in punishing Athens for affronts that the Athenians have done against the Persian Empire, and Sparta gets pulled into it through alliance with the Athenians. The Spartans basically are trying to keep up their self-image as the leader among the Greek city-states. Uh, and they make a deal with the Athenians that they will ally with them, they will help protect them, 
they will lead a Greek coalition against Persia if they are allowed to be in charge, if the Athenians swear to follow orders from Spartan leaders on land and on sea. And the Athenians realize that most Greeks don't like them very much. Uh, the, the surrounding Greek city-states are fairly hostile towards the new Athenian democracy. They realize that if they want a deal, if they want enough manpower to resist a military attack from Persia, uh, they need to play ball with Sparta. So they craft this very short-lived coalition, and they manage to not defend Athens at first. Athens is captured by Persians. It's burned twice by Persian forces in 480 and again in 479. But King Xerxes is not going to stay forever. Uh, again, this is often depicted, certainly in Herodotus and Aeschylus and other classical authors, as a turn of the tide and a retreat where the Persian fleet loses the Battle of Salamis and then Xerxes goes home. But Xerxes was always going to go home. This is a royal progress from the middle of the empire to the edge, more than 2,000 miles from Persepolis. Uh, and he's always going to go back. This is the problem for any empire that's sending an invasion force into a very distant region in world history, that those who are resisting locally tend to have the advantage of time on their sides. So the Persian forces uh, suffer some defeats in 479. Xerxes goes back home to Iran. But then over the next few years, the Spartan coalition with Athens unravels. Uh, Athens builds a navy and tries to make itself the hegemon of the Greeks in the Aegean. And the Spartans, lacking the same amount of ships and revenue, uh, deeply resent Athens' rise to power. So over the following decades, what that leads to is an eventual Spartan interest in partnering with Persia. Uh, and this is the great irony of the, the 300 movies. They focus on this one very short moment in which Spartan troops fight in a way that ancient Greek authors were already mythologizing uh, to try to slow down Persian forces going into Greece. But only decades later, Sparta is begging for a Persian alliance and for financing from the Persian Empire so they could have a chance of building a navy and fighting Athens. Uh, and that happens in the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans are begging from the first year of the war. They're sending embassies to Persia saying, please give us money. And the Persians take several years before they're interested in this. But two decades into a three-decade-long war, they finally come around to the idea that uh, Sparta could be a useful client state. And the Persians give money. They allow the Spartans to build a fleet, which Athens sinks. Persia, uh, you get the sense in the Greek sources that the Persian officials are pretty annoyed, but eventually agree to give more money. And eventually the Spartans manage to capture the Athenian navy. And in the long run, this leads through several more episodes and Spartan backsliding, some brief fighting between Spartans and Persians in the 390 BCE. Uh, but the eventual outcome is, is that Sparta agrees to a long-term deal with Persia. The Spartans agree that Persia is in charge of the Ionian Greek city-states uh, in what's now the Asian part of Turkey. And the Persians give autonomy to all Greeks overseas. Uh, but they represent that autonomy. The, 
the freedom to choose one's own government as a gift from the Persian king to the Spartans and the Athenians and to all the others. And Sparta and Athens ultimately both agree to this uh, so-called king's peace in 386 BCE, where Persia acts as an arbiter and treats all of the Greek cities as uh, beneficiaries of, of Persian generosity. Wow. I feel like in that nice, beautiful short history lesson, which I really appreciated because I really think I knew maybe a, a, an embarrassingly little amount of that. But you've also simultaneously just completely destroyed the 300 and the 300 sequel because I did not know that Sparta had demanded to be in charge of both land and sea forces because that runs so counter, right, to the idea that the Athenians were the dominant naval power in the region, in the area, in the age. And it's led to a lot of people believing that, like, Sparta just did not have a navy. Now, can you illuminate us a little bit as to, like, why do people think Sparta did not have a navy or any kind of naval power? prowess which is why they we're taught that right that we had to leave it to the Athenians I mean we talk about Salamis when we talk about the lionization of Athenians as being this amazing naval power and look at what they did but yeah Spartans navy please help sure Sparta has a, a navy but a very small one uh, from the city of Sparta itself uh, they have a port about 30 miles south of Sparta at Githio on the Peloponnesian coast uh, at the time of the Persian invasions, Sparta owns about 15 trireme warships, whereas Athens owns uh, 200 that they've built right before the war. So Athens, with this naval surge right before Xerxes came, was the dominant naval power in terms of ships and available manpower for those ships. The Athenians also have an internal source of silver through uh, the mines at Lorium. And that gives them the initial ability to finance shipbuilding and payments for the rowers who make the ships work. And over time, the Athenians augment that base of silver uh, by charging a, a silver tribute to the other Greek city-states uh, that they compel to stay in their Delian League alliance. Sparta has this very small number of ships, uh, partly because it's not a port city, but partly because it lacks the silver access as well. The, the Spartans don't have that level of revenue that you would need to develop a larger naval power. So they don't build the infrastructure that goes along with supporting warships. Yethium is a small port, but it doesn't have large numbers of dockyards, of what we call ship sheds, which are the onshore garages that you build to maintain triremes so they don't simply rot uh, over a couple of years. Athens uh, is already building ship sheds before Xerxes' invasion uh, and then you know, constructs massive, very, very brilliantly designed harbors by the 460s BC in the generation after Xerxes came. And all that infrastructure makes it much more possible for Athens to, to wield a, a naval power. So the Spartans lead in 480 as, as a part of their prestige as a city-state in Greece, but not for the number of ships that they can bring to bear. Uh, and that gives the Athenians leverage. Supposedly, there are debates between the different Greek allies 
over whether or not it's safe to fight a naval battle against the Persians. Uh, and Herodotus shows the Athenian commander Themistocles saying that if you don't fight, if you desert us, we're going to sail away and found a colony in Italy, or maybe we'll join the Persians. Again, there, there are a few moments in Herodotus where the Athenians boast of their Greek patriotism and their desire to resist Persia forever, but then a few lines later threaten to join Xerxes. And again, that kind of pragmatism and, and the use of threats in alliance between cities that don't trust each other very much, that's, that's part of what makes the dynamic of the ancient Greek world so fascinating to study. Um, over time, when Sparta does build a fleet in the Peloponnesian War, the number of actual Spartan ships remains very low. Uh, again, we call it the Spartan fleet as a kind of shorthand, but it's still a coalition fleet with most of the ships coming from allied Greek cities that are also fighting against Athens. The biggest contributors would be Corinth in the northern Peloponnese and Thebes in central Greece, which is a, a long-term enemy of Athens and had actually fought for Persia during the Xerxes invasion. After the Peloponnesian War, I've written a, an article on this uh, a couple of years ago. After the Peloponnesian War, Sparta has this enormous fleet because it's captured Athens' navy intact, but it doesn't have the infrastructure to actually maintain the ships. And it alienates its allies. It doesn't send any of the captured ships back to Corinth or Thebes. It tries to hoard them all itself yet without the ability to fully support them. And then it quarrels with Persia and the Persians cut off the funding. And within a few years, in the 390s, the Spartans briefly attempt to build their own empire along the east coast of the Aegean. Uh, and they say, we're going to liberate the Ionian Greek city-states. We're going to basically take over the Athenian empire that ended at the end of the Peloponnesian War. They fail because Persia sends its navy into the Aegean Sea uh, and destroys the Spartan fleet. And again, that seems to happen because the Spartan ships are old, they're deteriorating, they are poorly supplied and maybe undermanned. And when the Persians choose to deploy naval resources, they can easily sweep away this Peloponnesian fleet. So to connect this back to Persia, so I think from what I remember and from what media, right, let's just put a blanket and say media on it, have shown us is that the Persians are a vast land power. They bring all their things over and they come and, you know, they kind of bully the Greeks as they're trying to invade. Um, I haven't seen something that really talks about their prowess uh, as a, as a naval power, you know they have a large navy just because it's a numbers game. And so they have so many people in a very, very large army and they're going to build resources. So they, they can put their troops on a lot of ships and send them to Greece. And that's their navy. Great. But it's just interesting to me that you have Sparta who eventually, right, a couple years later, whatever, they will go running to the Persians and say, hi, 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 we need your help. Please fund us. Yada, yada, yada. But was there any consideration on the Persian side, right, that it's like, well, they are known for being a land power. We're kind of a land power. Where is the benefit to us allying with 
the Spartans, if I, I again, I don't know the status of their navy, but if they were not like the greatest naval power, it's interesting to me how they would take a few years and then be like, yeah, sure, let's ally with the one city state that like has not a real great navy that doesn't seem to benefit the Persians in any way. So, yeah, what was the state of the Persian navy then? Sure, that's that's a great question, and and again, it's complicated. I wrote a lot about this in in my first book, and I could probably talk your ear off on it. Um, but let me kind of focus on a couple of key details. So, first of all, the Persian navy is not necessarily a standing fleet that is always kept up to large numbers with combat ready ships. Um, they rely heavily on client kings or client governments in coastal Mediterranean city-states in order to provide the, the bulk of their warships. The Persian kings may subsidize ship building when they're getting ready for a big military campaign. Um, they could facilitate the movement of shipbuilding resources between different regions. So when they control Egypt and the Levant, including the Phoenician city-states, um, they are able to basically support shipbuilding in both areas, which would involve some movement and trade of material between them. So Egypt does not have good shipbuilding timber. And you get that from the mountains in Lebanon through the territories of Sidon and Tyre. Um, the Phoenicians are going to rely on Egypt for papyrus, which you can use in sail making. You can get materials for hemp rope uh, from Egypt. That's essential for the rigging of warships. And what the Persian kings can do is basically speed up that process of drawing on the resources from different regions. This probably happens before Xerxes builds the, the huge fleet that he takes into the Aegean in 480. Um, so Xerxes' fleet in 480 certainly is not as big as Herodotus and Aeschylus claim that it was. In my book that I'm currently working on, uh, I follow a lot of scholars who accept a middle-of-the-road figure, 600 warships or so rather than 1,200, which the ancient authors claim. Um, but even 600 for logistical reasons, is really enormous when you imagine crews of about 200 people on each of these warships. So it's incredibly expensive to maintain them, just in terms of the sheer uh, food resources, to say nothing of the silver that you probably want to give your rowers to keep them working uh, on your ships. That means that these fleets are built for a major expedition, but in the wake of it, even if the Persians had won in 480, even if they beat the Greek fleet at Salamis and they established pro-Persian client governments in parts of Greece, uh, I don't think they would have kept up that fleet. Again, I think it it would, wouldn't have suffered the, the same level of battle damage. You probably would have had smaller numbers of ships concentrated back in Mediterranean harbors and then maybe replaced after a, a decade or two. Um, but there wasn't a rationale for a fleet on that level, except for a very short-term royal power display. Xerxes is going. He wants to show off that he rules both the, the seas as well as the entire earth. He wants to exceed his father Darius the Great's achievements. And the best way to do that uh, in a naval frontier area is to 
gather as many ships as you can. But afterwards, uh, those, those ships, in fact, are decimated in the, the fighting against the Greeks. And we don't see an effort to rebuild anything on that scale ever again. You get smaller Persian fleets that show up from time to time in Greek historians in the Peloponnesian War era, and especially in the 300s BCE, because Egypt seceded from the Persian Empire in 404, uh, and the Persians launched several expeditions with land and sea forces to try to take it back. So at the time that they're starting to deal with the Spartans, what we see is the, the Persians maybe have a handful of warships in the Phoenician Greek uh, the Phoenician uh, city-states, they can build a larger number, but they also spot an opportunity to end Athenian power and set up patronage over a, a new hegemon in the Greek world. And that actually comes in response to events in the Peloponnesian War. In the year 413, Athens had famously miscalculated uh, by trying to invade Sicily in the Western Mediterranean. It had sent ultimately two-thirds of its navy, more than 500 miles from home, gambling on the ability to, to expand the Athenian Empire. Uh, and instead, they lost them all. And at that moment, Thucydides writes that in the winter of 413 to 412, the news of Athens' naval disaster comes back to the Aegean Sea, and that reaches the Persians as well as Sparta and other Aegean Greeks. Thucydides writes that everyone in Ionia, and that probably can extend to the Persians uh, a few miles inland at Sardis, that everyone in Ionia thought the war would end within months, that Athens is about to surrender, its navy has been destroyed, so the Greeks that it's taxing are going to rise up and break away from Athens, it's basically over. That's the moment when Persian uh, regional governors in Western Turkey send messages to Sparta and offer funding. And what seems to be happening is this rush. The Persians recognize the situation in the Aegean is changing. Athens appears to have lost its navy. So they offer to speed up the process, give some short-term funds, Sparta can gather and pay a fleet and finish Athens off. And then it will owe the Persian Empire for its generosity. And instead, they end up in this awkward situation because Athens doesn't surrender and the war drags on for eight more years. It ends up being successful, but it ends up being a very expensive commitment, which I don't think the Persians expected when they get entangled in it. Okay, it's very helpful because that's connecting the dots. So it was it was more just, yeah, it's expensive. We don't want to. Oh, but hey, there might be a chance. So, okay, we'll we'll ally with you. But LOL, that really failed. So, okay. And it's interesting because for an empire as large as the one the Achaemenids built, it seems like it was a whole dynasty built on not a lot of massive miscalculations on the sort of military side. From what you've studied and observed, is this kind of the biggest one, one of the biggest ones that they make? Or in the grand scheme of the Achaemenid dynasty, is this like an actual shorter blip, let's say, on the radar? Sure. I think 
every historical empire goes through periods of expansion uh, and then consolidation and stabilizing. And every historical empire experiences its share of military defeats as they try to establish exactly how far their influence and power projection can, can spread. Uh, and you can find a litany of Roman military disasters that accompany the, the form, formulation of the Roman Empire during the Republic and the stabilizing in the Principate. Um, you can find a litany of British military disasters in, in not only the American Revolution, but Britain's colonial wars uh, of the, the 19th and 20th centuries. And again, I think this is something that goes along with the quality of of empire building. I think the the natural tendencies towards exploitation and violence and seeing how far you can push your power go hand in hand with territorial expansion and and conquest. And, and there are going to be a number of missteps and setbacks which can be blamed on a bad general. Uh, it can be blamed, I think, the Persians as well as the Romans can blame these military defeats maybe on a temporary loss of divine favor for a commander who in some way angered the gods but but can be distanced from the, the actual government. Uh, this is something that I'm arguing in my current book, a chapter I've just finished writing, on a Persian general named Mardonius. He becomes Xerxes' proxy commander once Xerxes himself leaves mainland Greece and begins to move back into the empire. Uh, he leaves behind military forces in Greece. Mardonius is left behind. And Herodotus makes one of his characters mention that this is the ideal solution. If Mardonius wins, Xerxes gets the credit for defeating the Greeks. And if he loses, he's a bad apple and uh, it's all his fault. And again, I, I think that kind of goes hand in hand. We can see this in the Roman Empire with the disaster of Varus in Germany. And uh, again, three Roman legions get massacred in Germany. All of a sudden, it's not the emperor's fault. We don't know this guy. He's, he's not representative of Augustus and Tiberius. Imperial powers know how to expand. They engage in bloody frontier wars from time to time. They experience casualties along the way. Uh, but they know how to insulate themselves from mistakes. And the Persians are pretty flexible and adaptable in figuring out new approaches to a frontier when uh, something goes wrong. That's one of the things I found most interesting in writing my current book project, which is a, a prequel to my first book. Uh, my first book looked at the diplomacy between Persia and Athens and Sparta after Xerxes' invasion. But my second book is going back to the big invasion itself, uh, looking at Persia's Greek military campaigns and trying to understand a tension between the image of royal power in a symbolic sense, a world rule, and the realities of how you feed so many people and move so many people. Uh, and it, it's often in those tensions between power aspirations and real logistics and real issues of military tactics that sometimes people blunder and, and the empire you know, loses two important battles at Salamis and Plataea. But the Greek military defeats for Persia uh, are not in any sense an ending or even a serious weakening of a Caymanid imperial power. 
Xerxes himself goes back to the center of his empire uh, and reigns for 13 more years. And he may be engaged in military campaigns on other fronts. There's some evidence for his new construction projects, not just at Persepolis, but also in the Caucasus on the northern frontier. There's imagery of victories over Saka or other nomadic groups from Central Asia uh, that seems pretty prevalent during Xerxes' reign and the following generations. So there's probably more going on and a bigger picture than just Greece. Uh, Again, Xerxes waged a first campaign. Greece is his second campaign. And the first campaign, he put down a revolt in Egypt by a would-be pharaoh. And that seems completely successful. He put down a Babylonian revolt, maybe while coming back from the Egyptian expedition. So again, I think there's enough from the imperial perspective for him to be able to present himself as a victorious ruler, a successful ruler, even if that means downplaying or ignoring some things that are going wrong on one particular frontier. So after his expedition, there are some really bad consequences for Persian garrison outposts in the northern Aegean. Uh, And again, some forts get taken by the Athenians and Persians are, are killed or captured. The Athenian navy starts to become a greater and greater problem. By about 450 BCE, though, Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, sees the value in ending conflict with Athens. And they make a peace that might have been informal or possibly a formal treaty. Uh, But in either case, it basically allows them to resume trade and for the Persians to accept Athenian embassies and gifts and to kind of render Athens as a, a client state. So in the end, I think we have a shift from war to diplomacy over time that allows the Persians to project power when more of a hard power approach didn't work. No, I mean, it It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, especially when you've so beautifully explained it in a way that is hopefully very easy for anyone who's not an expert in this at all to understand. Because, yeah, it is It is a very, very large superpower. And so, yeah, something like the Greek campaign, kind of on the periphery, I don't think sitting here from what I from what I know, I don't think I would sit here and be like, oh, yes, that was and it was so devastating and that they will never recover. And it would just so. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, though. And it opens up a whole new. Well, I don't know if it's a whole new for me, at least. It does open up a lot of different dimensions in which I'm able to think about the Persian Empire at that time. Its size. It's just. It's a bit incredible, right? Coming from classics where you study a place that is kind of relatively small and then they're always having war and arguments and it's never one united Greece, Greek empire, right? So it does shape kind of how you interpret and and look at what's happening in the ancient world. So then to look at this major sort of superpower over here. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting and it's really different. So I love all of that. Now... There's so much more that I could get into, but we would be here until we're like 100 years old, and I wish I could do that. But I am going to just kind of skip over some things and go right to asking you. We've talked about this this legacy of Persian imperial power and warfare and things. So 
what we have though is we're left with two sort of very different views of the Persians and their conflict with the Greeks. You have what media tells us through 300 and other things, and then we have what the history books say. So if we were to, like, change this and, you know, input some sort of more Persian-friendly, respectful, and accurate core curriculum, pedagogy, something in a way where we don't end up with two very different skewed opinions... Having studied both, do you think there's a way where we can make stuff that's that's a little more accurate and Persian friendly? Because I don't really want to have to always refer to 300. I'm, I'm tired of telling people, oh, yeah, you want to learn about the Persians? Watch 300. Like, I'm tired of doing that. Right. Sure. And, and uh, again, you know, we would definitely not want people to to take their Persian history from that. I think there is. I, I think that there's a lot that can be done to... First of all, uh, there's so much visual material from the Persian Empire. And one thing that I do when I'm teaching my students at Christopher Newport University, I have a Persian history seminar that has uh, mostly history majors and, and some classics or Middle East studies students. But many of the students come into the class with no prior experience studying ancient Persia. And I find the visuals are incredibly important for uh, drawing them in and, and generating questions about the worldview, uh, the culture, the the arts in this cosmopolitan empire. And what does it mean to be an empire that draws on cultural traditions from Greece, from Egypt, from Babylonia, uh, from India, as well as uh, the ancient Iranian world? What does it mean to interact with Phoenicians, with Judeans and other people in the Levant? What does it mean to interact with Saka and nomad people on the northern frontiers. So one of the really important things that I think is worth stressing in education is the pluralism. Again, it, it's become something of a cliche, but I think uh, a justified cliche that Persia is the first world empire and that it is farther reaching, it is uh, more diverse, it is you know, more of a link uh, and a, a connection between dozens of well-known ancient cultures than the smaller imperial formations that had come before in uh, Mesopotamia or in Egypt. It draws on so many other traditions, and I think it can be used, again, just when I'm talking to my grade school-aged kids, I think it can be used to, to interest them as sort of a culminating moment where we get you know, what happens if we want Egyptians and Babylonians and Judeans and Greeks to all uh, meet one another? So that's part of it. It's the, the approach on the pluralism, looking at the art for uh, ideas of how material from different cultures can come into contact with each other and, and what are the results. Um, I think all of that is a, a really useful way to approach the subject and and raise people's interests. Again, I think the visuals also uh, give us the chance to look at images of Persepolis, the other Persian monuments at, at uh, Naqshe Rustam, the painted frieze reliefs from Susa, and, and so many more. Uh, there are so many images that are really visually arresting. And when students look at these images, they're going to have a response to them. I, I usually start my class discussions by putting up something like the Bissetun Relief and just asking the students, tell me what you see. 
what's going on in this picture? What, what could this mean? And I think using those materials is a, a great way of drawing out an interest in a, a more complex but a more interesting story of the ancient world. No, I mean, I think that's really valuable because from what I remember when I was an undergrad, we had a lot of Greek and Roman art and archaeology courses, which were very visual. We had one course on Egyptian and Near Eastern art and archaeology. But this course was only taught once every four semesters. So a very long time could go between and we had nothing for Persia and we had nothing visual and you know the the closest we could get was I think there was a class on Byzantine or Islamic art and and you know I picked up a minor in art history and archaeology and I found it really wonderful and interesting and there's so many wonderful pieces of ancient art that are so visually arresting that if you are not exposed to you then are kind of well out of luck which really sucks so I do agree that you know I think putting more Persian art in, and have it be accessible to more students would be a really good idea because that does like most things it does spark interest if you read about it or if you see it but especially if you see something I feel like people are more likely to go oh actually that runs counter to everything I've seen so maybe I'll learn more about it so I I hope that more people will will start putting more Persian art into into courses or just have it displayed somewhere honestly and hope it sparks a conversation. I did want to quickly ask about the book. I know you are working on a new book. Now, I hate doing this now. I'm very aware that it is probably going to be not very easy for you, but a lot of people are very interested in ancient Persia and the ancient world. But they don't always have the time to sort of sift through, read all these abstracts, especially if it's like a more academic book in tone, let's say, which are written quite differently from trade books and sort of easier things to parse through. So in talking about the new book, can you maybe give us a clue as to, you know, what are the main, what is the main or are the main takeaways that you would like people to come away with? Thank you. So the the name of the book is Persia's Greek Campaigns, Kingship Spectacle and Warfare on the Achaemenid Frontier. So the idea of the book is trying to put the invasions of Greece by Xerxes and by uh, earlier by Darius's generals into a broad ancient Middle Eastern context. Um, we don't have Persian accounts of the invasions of Greece, but we have a lot of Persian documents for how the invasions would have worked in terms of supply systems and communications, how movement over the imperial road system works. Uh, And so we can take the Persian framework, and then we can also look at royal chronicles from the predecessors of the Persian Empire, who often framed their power, their worldview, and their reasons for military campaigns in really similar ways. So these are especially royal annals from the Assyrian Empire in the 700s and 600s BCE, and a series of shorter chronicles on Babylonian military campaigns in the 500s BCE, right right before the Persian Empire takes them over. What I'm doing in writing this new book is basically thinking about how the worldview of a king and the desire to 
associate a king with military power display? Uh, how did that interact with the realities of moving and feeding and organizing soldiers and sailors? And so there are several chapters that look at the background and what are some of the kinds of spectacles that a king would engage in when he went on campaign. A royal campaign is not just a normal military operation. It's like a rolling press conference that travels for uh, hundreds or even, in Xerxes' case, more than 2,000 miles. Throughout this, Xerxes' journey from Iran to Greece and back takes three years round trip. Um, it's not simply trying to capture military objectives. There are all sorts of parades and ceremonies and public displays of the king's military might on the way. Uh, and the king's appearance is being very carefully staged. So we see that in Assyrian and Babylonian texts, and then we see lots of descriptions in Herodotus that look very similar, except Herodotus always has something snarky to say at the end. Uh, Herodotus is always looking to undercut the royal spectacle, to use hindsight. We know what happened after that. The gods weren't really on their side. He'll report the negative omens that the Persians overlooked or misread, and he'll portray the entire spectacle as hubris, where from the Persian and wider ancient Middle Eastern perspective, this is part of a, uh, a very lengthy tradition of royal display. So the book is basically about that. It's looking at how it differs when the king is on the campaign, as opposed to smaller, less ambitious operations when the king is not present. And it kind of traces as far as we can some of the logistics of how food supply would work. Um, it looks at evidence for, finally, for ships and for weaponry to try to understand and explain what might have gone wrong in the naval battles at Salamis and Plataea. But ultimately, it argues that the logistics of the campaign were well managed, that the Persians were very, very good at moving large numbers over great distances. And what ends up going wrong in the Greek military campaign is not so much imperial overextension as uh, some bad tactical decisions on two days at, at Athens and uh, in Boeotia in, in central Greece. The Persians very well could have won these military encounters. Uh, and I don't think that they're incapable of competing with their smaller Greek neighbors. But when the king has this giant rolling spectacle of power and he goes there in person and spends three years of a 20 year reign traveling there and back, and then there are defeats while he's there, it's embarrassing. Uh, and again, the, some of the later chapters of the book are also thinking about how the royal image would be managed and how would he try to insulate himself from defeat, for example, by scapegoating commanders who, who, are, who get the blame uh, and who also die in the, the expedition and don't come home to contest the royal version. It's fascinating to hear about the logistics of war and, and kind of everything that goes into it and how you get a king to come and because we hear a lot of, and the, the army moved from here to there. 
And there's no kind of thought really, unless I guess you really have a logistical mind. But for the for the most part, when I talk to people, you know, we we definitely say yes, and they moved from here to here. And even when we talk about something like Alexander's campaigns, you hear just a lot of oh yes, and they went from here to there and there, and it seems like a fluid sort of movement where they just were able to pick up and go somewhere, and then put down, conquer a place, and move on. So. I think that it would be quite enjoyable to really look sort of behind the curtain, let's say, of what does it actually mean when you have to take an army, right, or feed your army. So, yeah, ancient supply chains, like, these are very practical concerns. And and it's funny, right, because I don't know if you find, but I find that the more knowledgeable people get and sort of the higher you go in academic reading classes, whatever you find, it's like the simplest questions that tend to drop off the map. You you want to get into all these erudite things of, okay, so what's the most elegant, big problem I can think of? And it, it's kids, right? It's either kids or people who don't study the stuff, who answer like the, who, who ask the important questions like the, how did large armies go to the bathroom? How did they feed people? How did they, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So I feel like in describing the next book that is not due for release for a couple years, so we will have to wait if we want these big questions answered, I suppose. But it's interesting to hear that you are working on it. Because I would like to know. I would very much like to know. How did large armies actually have to transport their people and their food and feeding all these people? And it's not easy. Sure. Thanks so much. Again, logistics are really important, obviously, for military operations. And the, the study of ancient military logistics really started in some ways with a book by Donald Engels on the logistics of Alexander the Great's army. and But then has really built up in uh, Roman military studies, uh, where there's vast amounts of supporting evidence. Uh, and so I've been drawing a lot on these comparative studies, especially more recent Roman logistics work, but also there's work on the Assyrian army and the Persepolis fortification tablets provide a huge amount of information inside the empire for how small and large groups are being fed as, as they're moving across huge spaces. So that was really key to talking about logistics in in this book. Again, a, one of the biggest takeaways from the research there was the earlier studies of uh, Xerxes' logistics, such as a, there's an article by Kyler Young that came out in 1980, and they were basically influenced by angles. They were focusing on how the Persians could get access to grain and basically you know, how, how much grain flour could the Persians transport and how would that work over this distance. One of the things that see in the Persepolis tablets is that work parties and travel parties and soldiers are all getting daily rations in flour, usually uh, barley flour, but also or alternatively in meat. And they can be issued uh, basically lamb or goat or you know mutton. They can bring animals with them on the hoof or pick up herds at various spots. And it's not just a grain ration. Um, again, there's probably also some degree of supplementing from local markets with pulses and vegetables and, and things to, to add to that basic soldier's ration. But thinking about this, especially just about Persian soldiers as meat eaters, the, the fact that you also see sheep routinely involved in the rations in this imperial work system, uh, 
it actually kind of opens up thinking how flexible logistics could be in mainland Greece. There are a lot more options in moving into a region like Attica around Athens, where the harvests hadn't been planted for the invasion year. There are more opportunities for acquiring food in various other ways to supplement what they have. And I think the Persians were exceptional at logistics, at at mass feeding as well as mass movement. Um, So one other plug, the the other book that I'm co-editing right now is a Brill volume. It's Brill's Companion to War in the Ancient Iranian Empires. And uh, that includes chapters by specialists from the ancient Elamite period uh, through the Achaemenids and all the way through the Sasanian Empire co-editing this with the Sasanian scholar Khodadad Rezikani. And there are a number of chapters in this collection that address army organization. My chapter looks at the Achaemenid army and its organization and at a short version of logistics. And that should hopefully be coming out next year. So if you want the, the shorter, more digestible version, that'll be out before the larger book. Great. Well, I mean, we will definitely make sure that when they do come out, we will come back and we will link them in the show notes of this episode. And hopefully we can even re-release this episode just to remind people, hey, if you're interested. So we we definitely will want to put all that info for people to find because we want to make these materials findable. So before we wrap up here, I do want to just mention that I think it's fascinating studying ancient warfare and especially ancient warfare from a bit of a different perspective because I think it's a bit more common that if if someone says oh well I'm a military historian I feel like people are maybe 90% of the time going to be asked okay so does that mean you do ancient Rome or do you do Alexander or something more contemporary maybe Greece or maybe Greece so For students who may want to follow in your footsteps and say, I'm really interested in Persia too. And I really like military history. I like learning about battles and all these things that have to do with ancient warfare. If you were going to give them advice about how best now to sort of get into the field, what would it be? Sure. Well, I'd I'd say to study the Persian Empire, first thing is you need access to a number of different ancient languages. And you know, try to, I mean, get some familiarity with, with history classes um, or with art history classes that, that deal with aspects of ancient Persia and, and start to kind of build up your reading and your general knowledge. But if you want to pursue the field, you should be looking at some languages to, to begin your ability to access the ancient sources directly. And ideally, you should be looking at interdisciplinary graduate school programs that provide the opportunity to look at different cultures in contact. Um, Again, because studying ancient Persia doesn't just mean the study of Farce or of Iran as a territorial or a political unit, you know, it's much broader than that. You need a number of ancient languages as well as familiarity with a number of modern languages. Um, When I started out in college, I, I did Greek and Latin as well as German as, as my modern language. And I learned French as I added, uh, came, came into grad school. But there are so many ancient languages that are out there that are important for the Persian Empire. Um, the, the ones that I would really encourage people to study if they ever got an opportunity 
would include Old Persian, Babylonian slash Akkadian. If if you have the chance to study uh, Elamite or or Egyptian hieroglyphics or Demotic or Biblical Hebrew and or Aramaic, all of those can be gateway languages that can can lead you into broader study of the Persian Empire. But the other great thing about this field is that no one can learn all of languages. It's, there's not enough time. There's not enough funding. I guess if one were a hermit and independently wealthy, you could just study every Achaemenid language. But this field is collaborative. By the very size and shape of the Persian Empire, it depends on people who have a few ancient languages and a few relevant modern languages and then can bring them to bear and talk to other people who work on other parts of the puzzle. And ideally, the more you learn over time, you know, you pick up what you can wherever you can along the way. And in your opinion, to study ancient warfare, does one need to do a lot of field work and look at material culture? Or could you get by looking mostly through the texts and be sort of on the more philological side? And I, I ask this because obviously travel to Iran is not a thing right now if you're, well, American or a lot of other things. So people see lack of travel access as a barrier. So I'm just wondering, you know, if I were to say, yes, I want to study ancient warfare, can I get away with the texts, basically? Right. Well, I would I would answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, in, in terms of travel to, to sites that are connected with the Persian Empire, I've never been to Iran. I, I hope that someday circumstances will change and that that will become more possible for American scholars, uh, my generation and, and younger. The areas of the Persian Empire that I've visited are, are all uh, in Western Turkey and in Greece. And, and, but there, there are lots of places that one can potentially look at parts of the former Persian Empire, uh, especially, you know, whether that is Egypt and the Levant or whether that's the Turkey and the Aegean. There are a number of places that are very accessible. For studying ancient military history, I would say first and foremost, it you need a grounding in the texts. You you need to study the ancient languages in, in part because interpretations of what happened in a particular battle can come down to a single verb. They can really hinge very much on how people read a single sentence. Or, or a passage. Um, and again, writing a, an early book review that inspired me to write the full-length book on the, the Persian-Greek Wars, one of the things that stood out for me was looking at different books on the Battle of Marathon and how differently they interpreted the battle based on their reading of one or two key sentences in Herodotus. There was one book that commented on the Persians almost breaking through the Greek lines, but not being strong enough to do so. Yet if you look at Herodotus, the Greek explicitly says that they were breaking through and they were pursuing into the hinterland before the Athenian counterattack turned the tide. And so that leaves you with a very different interpretation. Are, are Persian soldiers not well equipped enough to be able to hack it against Greek hoplites? Or are they relatively equal in combat ability, but due to certain circumstances, they lost this particular action? And 
So you have to start, you know, if you're looking at battles, you have to start with the text and be able to read it and look at the commentaries and the different translations very closely. You have to learn to be humble and to not read too much into a text too. And, and that's something that I'm always afraid of being guilty of. It's, it's always a danger when we have so few pieces of evidence, often no real primary source texts, and we're trying to reconstruct an event that happened 2,500 years ago. There's, there's so much that we don't know. We have to be sensitive to the limits of the evidence, but also then develop a, a kind of confidence and boldness that you're, you're willing to say something new and to realize how that's grounded in the evidence that we do have. But going beyond that, the texts aren't enough. They're essential, but they're not enough. You have to be able to look at the landscape and everything we know about the landscape. You have to be able to look at archaeological reports if they're available. You know, whatever evidence you can possibly get in on the actual physical setting of military movement and, and fighting. And above all, you need to be able to look at images, you know, ancient iconography, and every ancient remnant of arms and armor and military equipment. There's lots of good comparative scholarship then that you might want to bring to bear on uh, things like archery range and you know, the, the weight of spears and the ways that they were held. All of these have to be put together in some coherent way to have a chance to try to explain you know, how fighting would have worked. Again, that, that being said, none of us are going to know exactly what a battle was like 2,500 years ago. Those of us without combat experience, without those of us fortunate enough to not have physically lived through war, are not really going to understand just the human emotion of, of being in a situation of, of war or mass trauma. So, you know, again, we have to kind of, we've got to look at scholarship and be very careful not to just project assumptions without a a strong base and a strong comparative context. That's fantastic. It all sounds good to me. I clearly will not be going into military history anytime soon, but I hope that there are plenty of young scholars who will take your advice to heart and figure out ways to, to go and, and do great things and discover more things and help advance the, the field. So there are two final questions that I would like to ask you and that I hope will get our audience thinking. And the first one is, in your opinion, what is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Ancient Persia provides the framework for world empire, for the combination of military force and organizational ability and economic acquisition with the ability to make it beneficial for social elites in many different regions and many different cultural contexts. Uh, this had already been done by the local Mesopotamian empires going back to the Akkadians in the late third millennium BCE. This had already been done by New Kingdom Egypt. This is done by a number of other regional powers, but Persia is the first to apply this at an intercontinental scale. Uh, again, from Pakistan to the edges of, the, of Sudan and Libya and Greece. To be able to do this on this scale requires 
mass communication. It requires mass persuasion techniques. And above all, it, it requires the ability to give incentives for local elites to cooperate with a central power. Other empires build on this. And I teach a world history class to non-history majors at CNU that, that's part of our core curriculum of gen eds. And it emphasizes the toolkit of empire. This really starts with the Achaemenids. Uh, and then through the Hellenistic world, this passes on to the Romans. We see aspects of this in the early Islamic empires. We see aspects of this moving through the Sasanian world into Central Asia. And it probably has some long distance impact on, on regional empire building in India and in some of the Central Asian regions that eventually come into contact with China, with the Xiongnu, the medieval Chinese empires, and, and later the Mongol state. All of these empires build massive road networks or enhance the road networks that exist. Um, they maximize communication speed and messengers. They find out how to make empire work for the powers that be who agree to cooperate with them among the local populations. They are also all, by nature of being imperial formations, they're all engaged in bloody exploitative expansion. I don't want to give the impression that some empires are kinder and, and gentler than others. There's hard power and soft power, but imperial formations, whether that's Persia or Rome or Genghis Khan's Mongol Empire or Britain in the modern period, um, they are all willing to engage in mass violence and to make examples of people who don't cooperate with the imperial ideal. But all of them have the staying power that they do for as long as they do because they're also good at pragmatic accommodation. And uh, again, I think that's the, the lesson that, that Persia gives to later empires. Um, for, for better or for worse, it, it becomes crucial in the shaping of subsequent world history. Wow, what trendsetters for better and for worse, but definitely trendsetters. So the second question I wanted to leave you and the audience with is, in your opinion, what would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? That's a, a wonderful question. I, I think the importance of investigating all of the different types of evidence and of broadening our views of the ancient world, trying to go beyond older paradigms and older stories uh, to, to get at the larger implications and how different regions of the world uh, connected with one another. Uh, so studying Persian history, again, I began in, in childhood coming to the ancient Persians through the, the lens of the ancient Greeks and coming at them through uh, fairly narrow views of military encounter. Um, but again, I think the what we can learn from studying ancient Persia is the importance of going beyond simplified stereotypes, going beyond ideas of East versus West conflict, which was really popular when I was in grad school around the time of September 11th and, and uh, the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Trying to move beyond these kinds of simplistic narratives to understand all of the broader interconnections of cultural exchange. Uh, again, looking at 
ancient Persia is is valuable in its own right for the the cultural legacy that Persia and Iran bring to world history, and in terms of the arts, in terms of architecture, in terms of the great poetic legacy that comes after the Achaemenid period, but becomes a crucial part of Iranian world culture. All of these are you know, important gifts to world history and, and literature and culture and, and deserve further study. But again, what, what fascinates me most and what kind of drives my research is that idea about frontier zones and border zones and cultural interaction, which can include war, but also uh, interaction in diplomacy, in economics, in art and religion and literature. And basically, I, I think that the more questions we can generate about the border dynamics at the edge of empires, the richer our understanding of world history is going to be. That's fantastic. And I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation. It's caught me thinking so much, yes, so much about legacy, so much about perception, especially to do with kings and warfare and conquest. And one of the one of the parting thoughts I want to leave with the audience and with you, I suppose, just be, if you'll allow me to be a little playful, is when you were talking about the impact of the Greek campaign on Xerxes and how it was basically at its core, like a small ripple to a very large empire, and it didn't really do much. For whatever reason, my brain just kind of thought to myself, oh, you're right, he could turn it on its head, he could do whatever he needed to, to make it look like he was still a good king, he went home because he had to leave, and then he was fine. And this is so opposite of, now I'm not a historian in this time period, I'm just an enthusiast and I watch a lot of things with this history period, but the famous sort of Scottish-English war between Henry VIII and his cousin James V, King of Scotland, when Henry's forces defeated James at the Battle of Solway Moss, the king famously, now I'm sure it's been changed because history is written by the victors, but hearing that James essentially retreated, went home, there was no way to talk about how this was just a small little incident. He went home and then two days later took to his bed and died, which is then why we have Mary Queen of Scots left in this horrible position of being shipped away because she's the only girl. So these are two very different instances, though, of defeats, but we don't remember James V as a good, great king. His battle defeat was horrific, and now we make fun of him for being that guy who like ran away to Scotland and died. And Xerxes is kind of untouched, really, by it. I mean, in Greece, obviously, they talk about it as, you know, it's a very big turning point in Greek history, and they sort of lionize it. But of course, it, as a scholar of ancient Greek history, yeah, that's just kind of what they do. And we talk about how great Greece is a lot. So that makes sense. But it was just very interesting how our conversation sparked this idea of can you turn defeat into nothing? Do we can we just ignore it? Do you become sort of a laughing stock in history? And it's it's very telling. and It's very interesting that we don't really spend a lot of time outside of the field talking about the example and kind of what a brilliant job that the Persians did. But in this example that I that my brain thought up, I was like, wow, he did good job. Good job, Xerxes. You were not a laughing stock. Also, it helps that he didn't die two days after getting home. But the point remains the same.
And so that's just what I was thinking about. And I kind of love it a lot. And it's going to stick with me. And I'm still going to think about it going forward. But all that aside, thank you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. And just to to be able to talk a little bit about a, a topic that I myself wanted to learn a lot more about and that I feel needs more airtime. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the, the program. And I've been so lucky to be able to attend some events at the Port of Wood Center and, and see uh, some of their online videos. And it's fantastic to see the attention that they're bringing to ancient Persian studies and raising the profile of ancient Persian studies in, in the U.S. So I'm, I'm really happy to be able to be a small part of that. Wonderful. And lastly, where can people find you if they want to send you an email about either taking a class or just a question generally about ancient warfare or check out some of your work? Sure. Well, you can find my email address is john.highland at cnu.edu. I'm a professor at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, and you can find my faculty profile page there. I also have a profile on academia.edu, where I uh, posted a number of my uh, articles and, and shorter works of scholarship. And you can find my uh, first book, which is called Persian Interventions, the Achaemenid Empire, Athens and Sparta from 450 to 386 BCE. You can find that from Johns Hopkins University Press on uh, any number of online booksellers, uh, as well as the Johns Hopkins Press website. Wonderful. Well, I will link all of those things in the show notes so they can find that as well. And sir, thanks again for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production hosted and edited by Lexi Henning with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Purdavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.